Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you something, people. I found out something the other day which blew my mind. An acquaintance of mine, um, I'm not going to say, you know, I, I know this person okay, but he got sick. He had a stroke, which is very sad. But he got taken to the hospital. And I know his wife. And when he got to the hospital, I found out from somebody who was there with them that the doctor said to him, well, he was not coherent. They said to his wife, well, we have to wait for his wife. And she said, I am his wife. And now they've been together for like 40 years. Well, it turns out that for the last 15 years, this guy has also been married to somebody else. And I'm thinking, you know, you know, there's certain things you can do. Like, let's say Joanne, you know, if I tell Joanne, I'm going to, she's out. I say, I'm going to sit home and read a book. And I, let's say, go to happy hour and have a few cocktails. You know, that's something you can get out of. You can say, well, you know, I didn't want to tell you I was going to the bar or whatever. But how do you rebound from telling your wife that you've had another wife for 15 years? I got to wait to see how this plays out. Because when he gets better, which he's a, he's a, he'll be fine because he's on the road to recovery. I'm just thinking... That is a lie that you can't even explain. Anyway, that's just my thought. I'm going to keep you guys updated on this because it's funny. But uh, we have we have a great guest today. This gentleman, you know, I was looking at his IMDb. Now, you know, I'm impressed when people have, you know, 75, 50, 100. This gentleman has over 200 in IMDb credits. I think that's the most of a Cooper Talk guest. And, you know, I've had some people who've been around forever. But my guest is Mike Starr. How you doing, Mike? And his thing is, and how do you explain it? I know it, it's one of those things. Like you know, I see him. He lives in the building, and he, you know, he would take off and you know ride his cycle. And now I'm thinking, wow, I guess when he took <laughs> off, <laughs> he was I mean, gone to the side of the country. I no, I think his wife's in L.A. I think I think it's like local. And, <laughs> I'm sorry and, to make obsess on this, but you okay. know, in billions that show billions. Um, uh, in the, I don't know if it was uh, near the end there, one of the characters, not not the big leads, but a very important character, that's what uh, one of the sides is going to use against this guy. They find out, they try to hold him up his feet against the fire because uh, they find out that he he had a whole second family. And it's interesting how he responds. But uh, how do you do that? I, I mean, th- th- It's fascinating. It's like, I sit there and think, you know, how this guy, first of all, I think if this guy is that smooth, what is he doing living in a complex? The guy should be, like, living in a mansion. <laughs> because well, you know, the uh, Mets, Mets pitcher, um, Cologne, uh, who's the biggest fan favorite, and he just signed with Atlanta, and everybody just loves him throughout everywhere, and uh, I'm not judging him by any means, but I think he had a wife, in New, a whole second family in New Jersey, and it, of course, leave it to the New York Post or the Daily News to make a big thing all of a sudden in the middle of the season. Well, and it was news for about two weeks and it just died down. Bartolo, that he had this whole other family. Bartolo Colon, I always say, he's like <laughs> a cockroach. Like when the world ends, there'll be cockroaches and Bartolo <laughs> Colon. Because that guy, does. if you saw him on the street, you would not think he's, and he's a dominant pitcher. Oh, no. That's he's he is I mean he puts up stats he is a workhorse and when they said he was like on steroids one year you go how 
Look at him. You know, look at the guy. He was on steroids. I know. It's crazy. So anyway, so are you, now you grew up in New York. Are you, are you a Mets fan or a Yankees fan? Yes. I'm from Queens, actually, and I'm wearing it now. I'm old enough, as a little kid, we were New York baseball giant fans. You know, uh, they would always do a thing about how Howard Cosell would say, the football giants. Well, as a kid, that's what you always heard because they had to distinguish between the two teams. They would say the uh, baseball giants or the football giants. And then they left in, uh, I was a little kid, they left in 57 and 58. They, the Dodgers and Giants came out here, which became a big dream whenever I'd watch Chavez or Avina. I said, someday I'm going to go out there. <laughs> but uh, uh, we stayed with... Uh, the Giants, and then the Mets came in 62, so Dodger and Giant fans kind of combined, and a lot of, lot more people stayed loyal to the Dodgers through the, the years, but especially in 69 with the Mets, people fully converted, you know? <laughs> so I was a Mets fan uh, and a football Giant fan since the late 50s, so I'm old enough to say that. That's not giving away... I don't think actors uh, should lie about their age anyway. It's kind of silly. <laughs> and, no, and they're changing that. Away my age. They're changing that now on IMDb. They passed a thing where they can no longer post an actor's age, though. They think, well, that's what's funny when you look at Oh, really? Yeah, they just passed that. that it's because, you know, people discriminate. And what's funny is, like, if you go to Wikipedia, you'll see someone's age. And in the, in the top, it'll say one age. And in the article, it'll say another age. And it's, uh, it's just, yeah, it's crazy. So... So, so no, you, you, you know, I, I, I just did see an actor uh, that I knew I can't, I just want to say, I just happened to see it, and they had him at 64. I just started laughing, because I knew years ago when he was lying about it, I said, what do you care? <laughs> I mean, years ago, it was ridiculous, like 20, 25 years ago, he was lying about his age. I said, I just got to tell you something. He told me a story, and uh, you would have had to have been 12. So you said you were 20 when you did just don't tell anyone, please. You know, and I, I'm sorry to be so uh, vague and elusive, but it wouldn't be right of me. But uh, but uh, I've had people tell me we had the Goodfellas reunion, and they'd say Nick Pileggi, the writer, and they wrote the book and everything, and different people come and say, you and Lorraine Bracco look young. You look the same, a lot of people told me. Did there people would say that to me? And I said, well, I call it laughing zen. I said, I think because I laugh a lot, but I'm still playing, they're still pulling me for characters. And, you know, I'd say early 50s, mid-50s, so that does make sense yeah. that people wouldn't, you know, that would be discriminatory. Yeah, because it's... Very interesting. Yeah, because you look at it. Well, that's also, you know, when they said about the, uh, when, you know, a few years back, or about 10 years ago, they said about the ageism with writers. And what happened was, you know, they said the older writers couldn't get a, a job. Well, funny now is when you, uh, look, you look at all the sitcoms, it's all older writers because they gave all the new writers, all these young writers, you know, a chance and all their shows sucked. Now you look at the things. You, <laughs> Is that right? Seriously, you, you look. You, you got like the Bruce Helford who created Drew Carey coming back. You have all these guys who have been writing for for years because if you want a sitcom or a drama, you know. I mean, I know you've been on Chicago Fire. I mean, you you, you get a guy like you yes. know John Well. You get the people that, that they can do it. Yes. So yes. so now you grew Very up. True. Now you grew up in New York, and now when. And you're you're a big guy. So did you play sports when you were younger, or when did you decide to parlay into acting? I mean, because you, 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 uh, you're like what six three and a half. I mean, you, you got some size. I can't tell. I like so much about height. You know, when you get in the theater, you make yourself shorter. And trying to play, I tried to play football uh, later on, and uh, 
one of these teams that said I'd get a shot at the pros, you stop making yourself three inches taller. So I, I would, we stay with like six, two and a half. Now I went in an audition recently and I just said six foot and my manager called, so what the hell? They're telling me when you're six, three, six, two, aren't you six, two and a half? So I said, I think I am. I just I don't know what happened. I just, I just said six feet. It was like an old, old habit. But the interesting thing that happened to me that got me in the theater, I might as well tell the story. It's, uh, my brother, who was uh, Bo Star, right? But his real name is Bill Star. But there was a Bill Star in the union. He was like my stage mother. And what happened to me was when I was nine or ten years old, I got rheumatic fever, and that was during the polio scare. You know, polio scare just, and they thought I had polio and all this stuff. And evidently, I had a congenital heart defect that wasn't that was turned out to be harmless ten years later. But you know, it's you know, the medicine at the time of this and that, uh, said, you can't do anything. I was, I was in a special class for a year. I'm not trying to tell a saga of a tragedy, but I think it opened up my head to different ways. It turned out to be a blessing. And, uh, I, they thought I had at first non-paralytic polio, but I, I went through all these like high fevers uh, for weeks and, and they said, you can't play any competitive sports. So there I was, I was like, I even went out, for a team when I was like 10 or 11 and I was a year younger than most of the guys I became a defensive captain then when it was time to get a doctor's note I couldn't get approved so I would do things on the sly I would play some sports I found out later on that my parents had people looking out for me and you know my brothers were but the problem was I thought it was going to clear up you know whatever I thought they thought I had and I went to uh there's a reason I'm telling you all this because it, it hopefully ends in a, an interesting story. I'm sorry. I know it's fine. Captain <laughs> Frankie says I tell these stories that are a long walk into a uh, for a warm drink of water, and you know I, I've been interviewed sometimes. Said, can you cut that down? But essentially, what happened was I went to I followed in my brother's footsteps, thinking I went to like a football power, a Catholic school in Queens, and thinking you know well it's going to clear up and I'm going to play. Well. I was never approved, and I went to this place, and they all, uh, all, you know, it was like some of the teachers, how come you're not playing? Some of the brothers said, how come you're not playing? I don't I can't take time, you know, and I didn't. <laughs> it turned out I didn't. I didn't find out till this Air Force cardiologist, my mom worked at this uh, hospital in Queens and got these guys to look at me, and they started laughing. They said, what did they tell you? I said, they started laughing. I said, I'm glad you guys find it funny, and I was like 20 years old, kept me out of the... Military, the Marine Corps one time said, "Well, oh, I'm going to try." No, you can't. You got hot. I said, "What?" And and uh, not that I was that eager. I don't want to make it that you know. But I was one A at one point, and I said, "Well, okay." Uh, but uh, I, I was blessed in that way, I guess. But but what happened was I was hanging out. I played ball, football with all these guys in the street, you know, uh, the sandlots, and they'd say, "You'd start for us." And this was a top team. Again, I'm not. The NFL and everything didn't miss any any right. uh, tremendous uh, thing by me not being at it, but probably kept my brains from being scrambled. So what happened was, I said, always fooling around. They said, would you help out at pep rallies? And I said, sure. I, I do impersonations of people at the time, political and uh, and uh, TV shows, whether it's Jack Benny, I'm really dating myself, whatever. But uh, I this guy came to me one day and said, we've got this five-minute role in something called Carnival. Five or ten minutes, we want you to do it because we think you'd be funny at this ball school. So I wound up doing this show, 
And my brother was with the Jets at the time. He was a free agent, and I think he might have been on tax court at the time. And he came to see me, who, who I got into acting later on. He said, you know, you've got, you're going to be an actor. And I said, no, 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 I'm going to uh, play football someday. He says, oh, I can't say the F word, I guess. Oh, you can football say the F word. That's all right. You can say the F word. It's, oh, it's, 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 it's internet football. radio. He, he, he said, actors are getting laid backstage, musicians, screw, no one likes jocks. You know, it was the late 60s, you know. So he said to me, he said, this is what you got to do. And I was watching, uh, we were from the projects. It was a nice working class area. And Joe Papp, I actually got to tell him this story. James Earl Jones, uh, Roscoe Lee Brown, who I got to thank, and Cleavon Little spent time talking to me. They would do, bring Shakespeare in the park to us, to all the projects. Now, they were classic stories. We, we were very balanced, uh, you know, perfectly. We were like a model community, perfectly integrated, and this and that. They, they did a documentary on us. It was great. I worked with kids in the neighborhood, and I wanted to get into politics. I was going to be a poli-sci major. And he brought me out to Hofstra, where my brother had transferred to, and there were these great people, Brian Dennehy's brother, Ressola Dennehy, and this man, Tank Pasuela, who was a big guy. And I came to watch the plays, and I was blown away. I said, well, okay, I'll be a poli-sci major. And uh, I know this is a long story, but this is how it happened. I'll be a poli-sci major and audition for their plays, and, you know, I'll be a congressman or whatever, you know, from Queens. (laughs) So, sure enough, we would go to this bar that the Jets hang out in. My father takes me out to watch my brother practice, and he ambushed me with one of the heads of the drama department, Carol Sika, and the top actress of the year in their festivals, you know, uh, Lynn Ann Leverage, who went on to have a pretty decent career. And they told me about this drama core program. I'm sitting there going, yeah, oh, great, I'm very polite. And they said, well, you'd be part of, you know, I said, you know, kids had gone to performing arts. I said, yeah, like, I'm going to be in an acting program. Well, my brother grabs me, and he says, so what do you think? I said, oh, please. Me with 50 kids, you know, that what, majored in acting, and this, I, I don't think so. It's tough for me. He goes, hey, schmuck, they don't have anyone who looks, talks like you, comes from your background. He said, they don't have anyone like you. So if you're any good, they're going to give you a full-ride scholarship. I said, what? It was like another pail of water put on me. I said, great. So what I did was I took the least amount of credits, fell in love with it. Here I am going to my Catholic boys' school, and I'm in dance class with, you know, a co-ed dance class, people running around in tights. It was quite a culture shock. And my brother Jimmy, he's in Vietnam at the time, and my brother's with the Jets. My oldest brother was an ex-Marine and a cop. I said, here I am taking drama classes, you know. And uh, sure enough, I got the scholarship and did the Mike Starr five-year plan. I stayed four more years. And that's basically, does that help? I mean, a lot of people would tell you, I love when actors tell you, well, you know, I was a great baseball player. I was a great football player, you know, but, uh, you know, I wanted to meet girls. So I did, yeah, okay, well, I hurt my knee or shoulder, you know. So whenever professional athletes try to uh, test me or they see, uh, uh, oh, did you play any ball? I never take that. I never take that uh, bait. You know, I hear actors say they were this or in the mob or whatever they say they were or X this and X that. You know, well, so I just say, let me give you an idea because it is a true story. As my friend who was a sergeant in Vietnam and came back to play, the only guy who calmed down by going to Vietnam was Marine. He said, "Starman, you were the real Rudy," because I walked on and got to start some games and played. And uh, what happened was, I always tell people. 
any professional athlete say, did you play? I said, let me tell you my distinction. You know, you can see it. I'm just waiting. I said, I was the only, I'll tell you my athletic ability. I was the only guy in the NCAA that was playing on a drama scholarship. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a lot of heart, and I got on the kickoffs and got to play, uh, start a couple of games, play, and uh, and then what happened was uh, about a year, if that's a couple of years later, you know, I figured, oh, I think I missed something, and I tried to hook up. I actually, oh, God, you know, you have to say, we say this all the time, but I've been trying for years to, and I'm finally putting it together, a loosely based screenplay on a guy that tries to play. I tried to play when I was in my late 20s and had a lot. I'm trying to do like a slap shot, a little more mystical slap shot about my experiences playing football stories I saw and, of course, embellish on it but uh, and bring a lot of other things. And it's not a success story in the way that, you know, normally, hey, this long shot made it. You know, it's uh, not giving away the ending or anything, but it's uh, more examination of uh, what's important in life and, uh, and what, and a comic stuff, of course, along the way, but uh, what uh, what sometimes people think that fame and success or something like that will uh, will completely make them happy and fulfill them and basically shoulda, coulda, woulda, and, you know. And my wife, God bless her, she put up with me going through it, and then uh, uh, a few years later, well, 10 years later, uh, she got into medical school. My wife's now a pediatric heart surgeon, so... A lot of actors say, oh, you were smart, you married a heart surgeon. So she said to me, I'm going to put you through the family through praises. I said, hey, we only had one shot. You put up with everything and wouldn't even let me quit acting. You let me try to play my fantasy. I played a year of football at a certain level, uh, at, you know, uh, trying to, you know, they told me I'd get a shot with the Raiders or something. I'll forget. But so that's. That is in a 10-minute long story about, I hope I haven't talked too much, I'm sorry. No, no it's fine. one teabag today, too. No, it's just fine. Now, now, so but that's you, how I became an actor. So now, when so you became, you got out of school, now when did you sit there and say, I'm going to do the, I mean, you know, you can go to school for something, you know, there's so many people that go to school for different things. I went to school right. with acting majors who I I bet they're not in act, they're not acting anymore. Um, when did you decide to start to really pursue it professionally? Because you've had a very long career. And as I said, so many credits and you've worked with so many That's amazing people. Yeah. When did, when did you start? And I to... always felt that was starting like a few, t- a touchdown or two down. I started, re- I thought at the time, which was like 27 years old, which, that I started late, you know, cause I was going, there were people that you'd go out in the world and they would, they had been doing it, you know, straight through, uh, since childhood or something or teenagers. I, and then of course you started meeting people that just got into it from blue collar backgrounds when they were 50 or 40. Um, what happened to me was I kind of went on this quest and <laughs> like, you know, that era, you know, the early seventies, a spiritual quest and wanted to find out there was just something that, you know, a lot of us did, you know, you know, the deal, uh, saying, oh, is this meaningful? What? If? And again, my friend Tom Bray, and there was a fellow Larry Pontillo who lived in this town in Clinton, Connecticut. My friend Tom Bray said, just do us one favor. I know you're taking more time to find something. Can you come up and do 1776, play the Scottish Colonel? Because you're a singer and this and that. I said, okay, one. And that's when I met my wife. We were just friends. She was playing flute. So I met a musician who eventually dropped out of school. And people, you know, and uh, 11 years, had three kids. And 11 years later, she's getting into medical school. But what happened was, that's a great question, because I started getting the bug again. And I just did theater. I said, ah, I don't know. I don't know. And I would do summer theater. And then we were married in 75, and 
I got this job. What, what do you do with a drama degree? They wouldn't even let me teach. They wouldn't. I had worked with kids in neighborhood. They wouldn't give me a job at the Spofford, the notorious Spofford Youth House, who I think Mike Tyson might have been in there at the time, and I knew people were in there in the Bronx. No, you don't have social credits. I couldn't get a job, so I looked at the papers. I, I got a job at what was then the Jack LaLanne's Health Spa. Okay. <laughs> Another thing I'm writing about. And I'm standing there making a hundred and a quarter a week or whatever in 1976 or so. And my wife is pregnant uh, with our first child, Cassie. And I said, you know, I'm supposed to be good at this. I had a scholarship. What the hell am I doing? And, you know, fellas from, it's a great question because you went your own route and this and that. And you know that, I mean, people don't ask me those questions. Like, you know, when did you decide or whatever, or, you know, I... I think people think Martin Scorsese did Southern discover me in a car wash. I had to readjust and learn about being small again, being natural. You know, I I I, I went in freshman year and they said, "Oh, you could just work now. You're you could be a film actor now. You're a natural, whatever." And I I started doing all this theater. And then I had to adjust. But what happened was, people like uh, Gary Epstein, who's an agent now, was a friend of mine, and he was working for an agency. And they said, "Oh, come on, you crazy things happen." I started getting. Auditions. Art Shamsky, the former Met, he uh, met me in a spa and said, "You know, you should act." You know, and I uh, he was partners with a woman, Russell Raglan. You know, I, that's how I got in the union. But that's basically what I did. And one, I, you know, you you wanted to find out. New York was so um, every place is unique. Chicago, the theater scene was unique to itself, and people came to New York or L.A. And the thing about New York. You always felt you had a shot. I could go in the city with just a couple of tokens and go to the Broadway show league, play in that, and someone would tell you about something. And one of the things I made a decision to do was start doing theater showcases. And uh, Steve Kaplan had put me in a, to play The Alchemist. Steve Kaplan ran uh, later on the Manhattan Punchline Theater, and he's written books on comedy. But then Dan Loria, I met on a beer commercial, and he put me in this show, Vespers Eve, about the formation of the mob. I played Doug Schultz, got seen. Uh, Lou DeJama, who just left us last year, as they said, in the Academy Awards, he put me in this a controversial movie called Cruising, directed by William Friedkin. I remember that movie with, uh, with Pacino. The oh, they're still trying to do a documentary on you. Uh, talk about it being thrown into the fire. There were protests. People thought it was going to incite violence towards the gay communities really uh, an experience and years later 25 30 years later became like this cult following and rediscovered at con and uh, and uh, like it was supposed to be this brilliant piece I don't know you know it, uh, uh, so that's that's basically and I said you know Joe Spinell took care of me and I felt I started learning it was really almost a it's an overused word about a street survival, but you try to, you know, you went around, you met all other actors, you, who introduced you, or you introduced them to a casting director or agents, and you hung out with people uh, in the city, you know, and you, you could afford a cup of coffee or something like that. You sat around or a bowl of soup at the Edison, and you, I don't, uh, you know, you, you went around and you just said, listen, I have no choice. I got to figure out. I got I'm a kid, one kid after that, I said, let me figure out how I get into this. I went to school five years for this. And that was one of my only regrets. I couldn't afford to go. I really wanted to study with Stella Adler. I couldn't afford to do any of that. I took some speech classes. and You know, uh, I'd always resort back to, like, if I was working in clubs, back to a New York accent. And when I've had to, I'd get rid of But, you know, 
so many things I did had that. But you started, I couldn't afford So what I did was I would get involved in plays, uh, whether it was regional theater or showcases. A lot of times the directors were acting teachers. So, you know, so I got to, to see all different styles of acting. And then gradually as I went along, if I got in a film or something like that, or I had a small part, I would just watch these other people. So I guess I guess I decided big time in like that time, 76, 77, another 15-minute answer from Mike Starr. I'm sorry. Oh, it's fine. I'll make them quicker. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, it's fine. You know, I, I don't know how to do things in a 30-second commercial, only when I did commercials. I know. That was the other thing, too. You know, in New York in those days... It was funny. It was either theater or commercials, you know? And uh, there, there'd be a feature might come. And the interesting thing about that, I, I always give John Hughes credit for changing the industry around. I mean, I just adored him anyway. He was just a great guy and a visionary in a lot of ways. All the characters, the detectives and the mob guys, everything, they were all in their 50s or 60s. Even I remember going for a beer commercial. I was like, 28, and they said, well, you're kind of young, the iron workers, they made all the iron workers older, and that kind of flipped in the 90s, you know, the early 90s, where they started going younger gradually, and, and beer commercials were appealing to young people, you know? So, so that was another roadblock. I was I was, gonna, I was looking at the fireman's test, and I said, someone told me, why don't you just work a city job for 15 years? And, in fact, my father-in-law got me a job, uh, working with kids up in uh, uh, in Connecticut, uh, and we were going to move up there, and it was really a good, like, uh, juvenile uh, and recreation, and it was a good job. All of a sudden, I started booking commercials and got a film. I went, oh, okay. But really, that's I thought that I was just going to come back, you know, like, when I was 40 years old, you know, and try to, that was one of the advice given me, you know, get a pension and go out and, you know, when I was the proper age, because... I was a character guy, you know, and it just didn't seem they wanted guys 25 years old. Anyway, that's that story. So now, John, you started, you know, after cruising, you said you started getting commercials and, you know, so you you saw that you could get booked. Well, then, but then you before. said you said there was also, you know, you had some obstacles because, as you said, the character guys, they wanted people older. And it's always something I've had actors who say, you know, they've had to grow in to their, um, yes. their age, yes. like James I Morrison said that I he feel had, that now. Yeah, they, they, they've grown into it. So then, so now do you, as you're starting a book work, do you want to stay in New York or do you want to go to L.A.? Or where are you at? And because you have a family also, I mean, what what do you decide to do to try to further your career after you start getting the work and you start getting the commercials and uh, things start happening? Great question. You know, everybody, my, my brother finished up in the Canadian Football League and uh, his wife is his best friend still, but he got divorced and he came. I said, come down to New York. I'll I got him, and he had done some commercials up in Canada. I got him involved, but I sent him and everybody in the early 80s out to L.A., and it used to be a running joke. You know, people said, geez, Mike Starr met this guy, Nunzio, in the post office, and he, he's at this audition, and he's out here. He told them, he's sending all these guys out to L.A., so he has no competition. <laughs> all the older, you know, the character actors my age in, the, in their 30s or the 40s are saying, one of the main reasons I didn't go is that my, we had kids, and of course, you know, New York has always had that thing of, oh my God, don't raise your kids in L.A., but I, you know, I don't, I don't have all that bias, the East Coast, West Coast, whatever, but uh, what had 
happened was my kids had two sets of grandparents and a set of great-grandparents. And essentially, my dad and mom came back to life when my first child was born. So the last, my father said, oh, you can't base anything on us. You go pursue your career. I said, no, no, no. I figured I would just keep getting quality and learn and be patient. And I really did plan like that. But then essentially, especially when my wife got into medical school, we had to move from Queens to the Bronx. I told every Jack McGee, an actor, who was very successful. I was a fireman actor at the time. He moved us up. I didn't even know. You know, like when you're from one borough, the other borough is like a foreign country to you. And uh, all of a sudden, a whole new life spread out for me. But what I did was I tried to stay on the East Coast as much as possible. I figured, okay. And now, essentially, after... She's 98. My, I mean, my wife had to do four years of med school. And actually, one of her big breaks came from Dr. Oz, really gave her a lot of opportunities at Columbia Press at the time. I just stayed where she was, where my wife was, Joanne, and the kids. I wanted to be there wherever they were. That's how, and we even wound up Seattle. Uh, my youngest had to do a senior high school in Chicago. And then the kids all moved out there eventually, uh, especially after 9 11. But one thing I did was I just was patient in New York. And I got flown out to L.A. One thing I did do, a uh, proactive move, was I did a play uh, uh, out in L.A. with Malcolm McDowell, Susie Kurtz, and uh, Arthur Penn directed it. And he had wanted me in New York, and it was a big hit in New York, and he changed his mind. And I had to go out to L.A. and stay with my brother. But what it did was it introduced me in the late 80s to... Oh my God, I'd go on studios, I'd get all these jobs, and I'd go, oh my Lord. You know, I'd send the money home, oh my Lord, I can't believe this. I can't believe how much, you know, how much work is out here. But it wasn't really until the early 90s, and then of course Goodfellas helped a lot, that I started like, it was almost like commuting to L.A. But I wanted to be around with the kids as much as possible, and uh, that had a big influence. But sometimes they bring me out, and then... I get these jobs even as much as like the job in Europe, and I bring a couple of the kids with me, and sometimes all three, and uh, for my wife's residency. But now it's, uh, as you know, uh, like anything else, the business goes in cycles. I just consider myself tricoastal. Okay. <laughs> like I'll go to New York even if I have to bring myself there, if because uh, there's so much going on in New York. So. I basically now consider myself, when people say biker, I consider, you know, I work in New York, Chicago. This past year, we were trying to produce something in Sweden, uh, this friend of mine and I, but I've been to Sweden. Billy Bob put me in bad sand. I was in Montreal. And then Michael Imperioli got me involved with a real interesting story about a burlesque house in uh, Portugal. I was, I was in Portugal this year, just trying to give you an idea of where I've been. And then I did an episode of Billions, guys I had done knockaround guys with from other creators of that, I believe. But 14 years ago, I worked with them on Vin Diesel's first film. It's funny, a lot of these things are coming back to me from years ago. It's funny. PAs or first-time directors or writers, it's nice. And then on the other hand, I just had one of the biggest opportunities of my life working with uh, Christopher Lloyd and Michael Jai White and uh, this excellent actor, Jude Moran who's out of Denver now in the theater, he, uh, this first-time director, Devin, uh, put me in this real quirky, interesting film, which was, uh, you know, I, I, I did uh, get rid he, he was just 
telling me I got rid of the New York accent on and this and that and I'm hoping great things for it. And it's one of the best parts and opportunities I've ever had and really interesting story and really wonderfully talented people as cinematographer. So I'm dealing with people from the past. Does that answer it? But I'm also dealing with new people. So I was in New Mexico, Las Vegas, New Mexico. So that's kind of, I hope that answers it. Yeah. You know, it's funny. There's not a lot of, you know, the work, as you see, has a lot of it's left L.A. Yeah. I mean, it's still busy, but. Well, you know, you know what's weird is, you know, when you look at your career, you know, earlier in your career, and you played a lot of mobster Italian, and it's funny, you probably know, you probably know Ken Lerner. Ken Lerner told me back when he was starting out, too, there was, like, no Italian actors, so they weren't, they didn't have Italian guys in the cast. <laughs> And like he played the oh, Malachi, he, he played the Malachi Crunch. And <laughs> you're, you're you're not Italian. Well, guy. Just, I just did my ancestry.com. But what was crazy, I would go like the public theater would have something about uh, my grandparents on one side came from Poland, right? I mean immigrants. I mean I heard it spoken, and sometimes you know I I have to learn and I'll do it. But they never see me as that. And they were doing all these cool plays at the public theater. So well, you're not Polish. I said, oh my god. My name is Gwiazda, which means star in the sky, and they added an R. And they would say, oh, no, you're, you're, you know, no, you're not right for this. You're very Italian. I said, wow. And it's not like I tried to, you know, be, I, I you know, it's, I, I've had Israelis talk to me in Hebrew thinking I was from Israel, you know, or I've been at the airport. And I said, I don't even know what I look like. I go to Italy. And people from Italy think I'm Italian. Then other people say, oh, no, you've got the map of Ireland on your face. <laughs> See, and I found out that's not true either. I found out I'm a few different strains. Uh, as far back as Scandinavia, you know, Vikings going to Ireland and uh, the U.K., you know. Well, you know, so, it's, you know it's funny. Yeah, I know. I, I guess it's the way I speak normally. You know, I grew up, like I said, in uh, a very mixed background. And I had... An Italian uncle in Boston, it's funny, I fall into a Boston accent when I'm around Boston people. It's not like I'm trying to do it, but my dad was from Massachusetts, so I have a little bit of an influence like that. But I also had, uh, I called him my godfather, one of my best friends, who was this superstar scholar and everything, best Catholic school in New York, and he went to study German, and I spent the summer with his dad. He was a head of waiters at the Pierre Hotel, and he taught me everything. I cleaned, you know, squid and things like that. He teach me all, you know, and I had like, I always said I had a Sicilian influence from him. But it's not like I was a wannabe. I was very much into um, Italian culture and Rome. And uh, and I studied Italian in college and I went to Italy with a couple of, uh, with this group. And I was with a couple of football players. So they, they were Italian Americans, but my friend Phil Dolfinkel, Jewish American actor, he was, I was with him in Italy, but I guess I was always fascinated with the culture, but it wasn't like I was, uh, I saw the Godfather and started walking around kissing people. Right. Like, you just didn't have, we didn't have any, uh, it's funny, uh, my neighborhood was kind of thrown together, Queens was like uh, swamps and lots, and we had, like I said, a multi-ethnic background, but we had, I didn't know really full Irish people until I was like in my 20s, early, I mean like, you know, Everyone, it was like, uh, you know, everyone, you just said, well, I'm an American. Maybe, you know, you're something like that. You know, I'm a New Yorker, and uh, I guess I picked up. It's just the rhythm. Or also, with the preponderance of movies in the last, you know, TV shows, if you have a New York accent, so many times people assume you're Italian or if you're a big guy. And that's why I constantly work at trying to redefine myself. Not, not, 
not anti-Italian, just I'm saying, to be a different thing. You know, I, I worked with Alfre Woodard at the Public Theater years ago, and I remember going in on something, and I had to do Arizona. She was from Oklahoma. And she said, well, you, just standing there, look like a lot of people I know in Oklahoma. She said, but it's your forward motion. She said, it's not just the dialect. It's also, and I should know that from the theater, you know. Well, she said, it's also the way you carry yourself and walk. So that taught me a lot down the road if I had to play something else. It's a, uh, it's a whole physical thing that I learned from doing some theater that people walk different ways in different cultures and different energy, you know. And even my, one of my best friends, Brian Rose, a teacher at Adelphi, I was a classical actor and did a lot of uh, commercial work in New York. And he's my personal dialect coach, but also a lot of times he just helps me. And you learn about how the breath, I used to just impersonate people when I did dialects. But he taught me about the workings of the breath, things that I learned in college but didn't get at the time, you know. There's things you get now. So, yeah, to answer that, no, I'm not, but I speak it better than most. <laughs> now, I'm not great, but most Italian-American friends of mine, you know. Well, now, I got a question for you. Um, when you look back at your, you know, your, as I say, IMDb page, you know, that's how that's how I, you know, check everything out. Um, do you ever look at some of the movies and say, man, I've been in some classics. Like, you were in Goodfellas the same year as Miller's Crossing, and you were in what? Radio Days. I mean, yes. do you ever sit there and go, holy crap, you know, in a, in a what, a three-year span, maybe? I worked with Scorsese. All I worked the with the Miller. I worked with the Coen brothers. I worked with Woody Allen. And what was it like working for those guys when you're an actor? Is it intimidating when you walk on set? Because it's like, holy crap, there's Woody Allen, or it's Scorsese, or it's the Coen brothers. How do you get yourself in the game? How do you get in your game face when you when you have to work with these That's a great question. prestigious actors? Uh, How about doing a Broadway show with Nathan Lane, who requested me to, to fill it, to be in the part, you know, like, I say it's like playing football with Joe Montana, but, you know, my first job ever, which is way too long a story, I should sit with you at the smokehouse and tell you so, but I wound up in a movie, Bushido Blade, in Kyoto in Tokyo, with James Earl Jones, with it, but all these top Japanese actors, and the great Richard Boone, and I, I, I became friends with a man, one of the producers, and he told me that he originally came from, as a New State Chicano background, and he lived in England. He had a very interesting background. Uh, he, uh, he told me, he says, I'm a Chicano living in England. He said, but I had to direct Lawrence Olivier. And he said, I want to tell you something. If I look for one moment in total awe of him or intimidated, I'm done. He said, you have to do the same as an actor. You've been casting that, you belong there. And that's a big thing that people have to tell themselves. Not arrogantly, you know, because you see a lot of times it happens with some actors get on TV shows and they just start, you know, when they're the stars, some control it, some handle it better than others, but you have to know in one way your place, that you're not trying to overdo anyone, but on the other hand, that you belong, and that they're counting on you to be there, so, and especially, you know, it, it kind of happened, the good training ground was commercials, because you'd be on a set, or even just like some of the films, and they would put a so-called non-actor, say an athlete, this and that, so they'd give them a hundred takes. But they counted on you to do everything in one or two takes. And I think that was a great discipline and just playing up in the field. But that that is a great question. I mean, when I got on Miller's Crossing, great thing I had going for me with Miller's Crossing and Goodfellas was that, huh, I'm not a comedian, but the Coen brothers, 
and Martin Scorsese, I really appreciated my sense of, my bizarre sense of humor and stories and my nuttiness and nicknames and trivia and whatever, you know, and awareness that that kind of broke down things and they trusted you to ad lib or, or do something that involved you. So that's, yeah, that's a great question because maybe sometimes I was too stupid to know or too ignorant to know that I didn't, uh, <laughs> I should be intimidated, you know what I mean? Right. It's like, they're counting on you and you take a guy, uh, someone, I don't even want to say white, but you take Robert De Niro and again, I'm not just trying to do a puff piece here, but uh, he just treated me he just felt so comfortable with him, you know, and he was always, you know, you hear these things on talk show, oh, they were supportive and gentle. No, he really, he pulled me out and really, he gives you, he, people don't know this side of him, most people, I guess, but he's very, uh, how would you put nurturing or this and that, he'd nod at me and smile and laugh, you know, and he, he got a kick out of my humor too, on Mad Dog and Glory, so that he, I don't know, they, they give you respect and, uh, you know, my relationship, people tell Scorsese, must be so cerebral, and uh, this and that. <laughs> he would he would tell a story that most people didn't get about, it could be the Paul Newman Silver Chalice, or Night of the Hunter or something, and he'd do it, oh, you know, Bob, he'd say something, but my son knows this one, and I'd know the song from the right side, I know you know, so we'd laugh, or we'd tell, uh, in some ways, that, uh, that period I had in my life, maybe, uh, uh, thinking I was disabled, whatever, you know, where you focused on watching a lot of things. And I had three older brothers who brought me up on Jackie Gleason and Sid Caesar and show shows, you know. I got to sneak out and watch with them. That kind of paid off in a lot of ways because I would have this great memory and awareness. So that was my relationship. Like, you know, the Cohen brothers, I would speak like in t- cartoon. They would get a kick out of my do like the Sears catalog. I'd be dressed, hey, see, I said, you want to see the 1930 Sears catalog? And they would they would see me years later and stand there because I would point like in Sears catalogs and weird humor like that. Or they'd say, can you do a gorilla walk? I said, I'll give you half a grizzly bear, but I'm going to give you a Ed Norton. I said, what's Ed Norton? And I'd tell a story that Art Carney would do something in a scene <laughs> with, with Jackie Gleason. And uh, 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 they'd say, okay, yeah, do that, do that, you know, and. We never, like, you know, got into the depths of the character like that, you know, or I'd, I'd live something, call myself the Commandant in Goodfellas, and Scorsese would let me go, Mike, Mike, so what do you mean the Commandant? I said, well, it's Hogan's Heroes, it's 1968, Hogan's Heroes is a top show, this generation grew up on Stalag 17, and as I start, like, getting all deep about it, he'd go, I love it, keep it in! And it'd be really, I'd be really grateful when years later, some young people would come and say, you're the Commandant. Well, you know, you work with certain people, and you're Frenchy, you know, and, you know, famous people with younger people would say that to you, and it means a lot, you know, and, and you I were, guess so, yeah, I guess. You you were in Cabin Boy. <laughs> that movie is awesome. That's how I got Ed Wood. That's how I got Ed Wood. How'd that happen? So you got Ed Wood because of Cabin Boy? What happened there? I had been in a movie, Mad Dog and Glory, right, and, uh, the agent was saying, well, it's time to come to L.A., this and that. We got you an interview. There's this movie, Cabin Boy. That was their step, you know, at the time. And the fellows who did that wrote for Letterman, and they wrote a show, Get a Life, yeah. with uh, Chris, uh, you know. Chris Elliott. Yeah, Chris Elliott. And they said to me that Tim Burton liked that show, and they said, can you come up with something? They said, we don't 
don't even know what we're going to do, they said. Well, anyway, I would tell stories on the set. They even wanted me to go on Letterman for some reason the last minute I backed. I forget. But uh, uh, they said, you know who would really get a kick out of you? Because Tim was the producer. He's doing a movie about the worst, you know, Phil Ed Wood. You're right for something. Now, so many times, I know you've heard it, so many times where people say, oh, I want to put you in this film, or you're right for this, or whatever, you know. And we go, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, and it never happens. Well, sure enough, here comes Tim Burton, all 100 pounds or whatever he is, eating a massive plate of spaghetti the next day. And he's eating, and he's just shoveling spaghetti, the nicest guy on earth. And Adam, who's Adam Resnick, who's his name, goes, hey, I want you to meet Mike Starr. Don't you think he'd be great as Georgie Weiss? <laughs> and he's nodding. I got in uh, James and the Giant Peach from that too. But uh, the he said, yeah, he's, he, the goes, yeah, you'd be great. Mm-hmm. He's eating. All of a sudden, I'm in Ed Wood, you know. So Cabin Boy was a great experience. That was really, really a lot of fun. And when people tell me, they come up to me and say, I love Cabin Boy. I said, what year of college and how much pot were you smoking? <laughs> it was really an offbeat film, you know. Now, now, also, people must people. So many people remember you from Dumb and Dumber. Did you think that when yes. you got that role, like, first of all, I mean, the the Farley brothers were known. I mean, they just, I think they were just coming off something about Mary, I believe. But did you? No, no, something about Mary was after it. They, oh, really? Jim had done um, what was the one in Florida? The one, uh, oh God, where he really started getting popular. Uh, God, but it hadn't come out oh, yet. Uh, uh, Ace Ventura. Uh, no, uh, Pat Ace Detective. Ventura. Yeah, Ace Ventura. And he told me, he told me he wanted me on that. And I said, what? I said, he said, yeah, you want to go? I said, no, don't tell me that. That's when you start going, I'm sure you've gone through this. What? What do you mean? I wasn't available. I sat on my ass. But anyway, it worked out. But that was, I remember my brother, I was new to, kind of new going around. And I think I, oh yeah, I was doing this great, was really good. It just didn't connect this uh, baseball it was originally a great idea. I was with Joe Rogan and Dan Flark and uh, Bruce Greenwood. We were doing this pilot uh, called Hardball. It was very interesting. And I remember going around L.A. and they said, Jim Carrey signs for $7 million or whatever like that. And my brother shows me this. Well, one character hadn't been cast. It was mine. And I did everything wrong. I didn't even have a car. And this guy did me a favor. Drove me, uh, Chris Browning, drove me all the way to the other side to Santa Monica. I did everything not to get in this movie, not unconsciously. I, I, went, I went to the wrong building, then I went to the right building, wrong room, you know, right church, wrong pew, you know. And all of a sudden, it's all dark in there, so I'm lost, and I see these two guys walking out. It's the Farrelly brothers. I said, excuse me, do you know where they're casting? I said, yeah, that's us. And they told me at that meeting, they said, you know, Jim didn't want a comedian. Uh, New line, I mean, they're suggesting all these comedians. He wanted a guy, as we do, we saw you, we loved you in Mad Dog and Glory, which was a quirky character, but we wanted a guy that had played, uh, you know, real killers and, you know, real lists and movies, and had been in these real movies, and play off him. And if he plays it real, I mean, of course, some things I had to do a little more comically, but uh, uh, they said we wanted, they, we all three wanted a real guy, you know, real, if that's saying it, you know, if I'm saying it right, I'm paraphrasing. And you just knew, I went to, I don't go to dailies much, but when I first got there, they wanted to show me, and I saw this, saw this scene with Jeff Daniels throwing the snow at Lauren Holly, 
and licking the pole, and I said, oh, we got something special. <laughs> I was hysterical. Of course, being around Jim Carrey was a constant laugh, and Jeff Daniels is just a great guy. He was, kept himself, he was quiet, but we had a lot of good times together, and Jim was great, and I went out and went through nutty things. He had gallbladder surgery on it. He he did feel around the Farrelly brothers that there was something going on here, the, the energy. I, You know, it's easy for me to say, you know, 2020 hindsight, but sometimes you just think something's going to be great, and it isn't, and sometimes you go, uh, I don't know, and it really is something. Like, I mean, I'm on a set of Goodfellas looking at Joe Pesci do funny like a clown because I had to come in for some reason. And you go, oh, no, we got something special here. Right. <laughs> you know, you know that there, there is something going on here. You know, you feel that, you know, that energy. That Did I know? You know, it's funny, just once in a thousand times maybe, or a hundred, I don't know, you'll get a, a person who goes, oh, he only does comedy. He was in Dumb and Dumb. You think people will take him seriously? You know, a younger person. And you go, oh, Christ. So you, it, it's like you constantly have to redefine yourself because hopefully you were in something that you did a great, a really good job in and then was successful, but sometimes people will uh, make it, you know, it can bite you in the ass sometimes, you know what I mean? Uh, when, you know, you've seen people successful in certain shows and they're always trying to change their image in a way. Sometimes it's, uh, it's effortless and they cast the people that are in sitcoms now and movies or whatever but or comedians which is okay with me you know as long as it works whatever works you know for people you know that's great you know sometimes uh, I've seen casting wherever background I'm from I said what the heck happened here and it's not like I'm a bitter guy going oh, I should have done that I don't mean that but then you see people you go wow didn't know he had that in him or she had that in there you know no, no. but yeah I think Dumb and Dumber we had a feeling but it's just one of those things that's lasted so long and stands out. Gets me a lot of free tickets to sports, I'll tell you. Athletes yeah. love that movie. I was going to say. also kids that I've visited at the hospital. You know, there's still, there's generations. I mean, it was 1994. What, well, what, what do you think roles people remember you the most for? I mean, because, you know. Roll over. You know, you had that, and then I mean, and then also when you had that big commercial campaign for light beer, people must have met, recognized you all the time with that, because that commercial's played all the time. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, I guess some Italian-American groups have some funny stories about that. Felt it was offensive because we had Italian music. I had a friend from Northern Ireland said, I thought you were playing Polish. Aren't you Polish? I said, yeah, I was just standing there. And Frank Vincent was so upset because uh, that got thrown off the air. It played insane for like a month or two, you know, and they were ready to renegotiate. And they, you know, advertising people are much more squeamish, understandably, than uh, cable, cable people, you know, you could, you know, tell the Sopranos, oh, well, we're, this is offensive, we're picketing, uh-huh, and then you tell advertising people, they say, oh, my God, no, 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 we'll get it off, so that's what happened with that, but I, I think between Goodfellas, uh, a lot of people with the bodyguard, and um, Dumb and Dumb is a huge one on play, I, I, like I said, kids of all, and I just, I shouldn't just say in the hospital, but I mean, I, you know, like, I, I, you know, uh, people say, oh, you want to meet that guy? Oh, great. Okay, so that's great. You know, it means a lot to people. That's great. But I, yeah, dumb and dumber I get. I got it the other day. But what's funny is I get stopped for things that have a cult following. Like I did an episode of Millennium, the great director, Tom Wright. And uh, I did uh, every now and then. You know, the one that I can never guess, you know, though, is 
Miller's Crossing. You can, you know, you can almost feel people that are going to say dumb and dumb are good fellows or the bodyguard. But that that movie, Miller's Crossing, has such an across the map, literally internationally following. You know, then there's certain cult films. I did this in the deli about a degenerate gambler with his mom. But they were gamblers. They'll come up to you and say things and uh, from all walks of life. But I guess I would say that you know now I. I've been getting recognized in an episode of uh, Unbreakable Timmy Schmidt, and I'll, I'll get something like that. And, uh, yeah, there'll be certain films. Uh, the Actors Studio was talking to me when they saw me. I did two scenes in Billy Bathgate with Dustin Hoffman. It was just an absolute gem. I did my one of my favorite things. I, well, I, I got to be in The Natural, which is another story, which is a great experience. But I, I was, um, God rest his heart, Gene Wilder. You don't get any nicer than him. And he's so low-key in real life, you know. And we did these, uh, he wrote these Agatha Christie-type films for A&E. And A&E wanted him to do a weekly, and he was afraid it was going to be too diffuse. And then on the second one, he had uh, was battling lymphoma. We didn't know why he was so tired. And then it kind of fell out, you know, and he bounced back from that, and he lived a lot of years. Well, this was like 99 we did it. But... He had some of the top actresses in the world in that who went on to great things. And he was, uh, you couldn't wait to get to the set, to just be in that atmosphere and also uh, play this part. You know, I played his best friend in the town in 1938 in Stanford, Connecticut, was his, was uh, the detective. And he was the uh, theater director who I asked for help for his powers of observation, you know. I get to sing opera in that. Oh, by the way, in Miller's Crossing, that is me singing, by the way. Okay. We just had to do a different film. I always do that, too. People crack up. They introduce me. They say, that was Mike Starr singing in Miller's Crossing. He'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> and the Coen brothers apologize for not giving me credit, screen credit on that. But, yeah, I guess, what do you think? I'm, well, you're different because, you know, you're involved in the world, you know. Well, you just, you know, there's you so get, many... like, actors tell me, Ed Wood... Right. Well, it's funny. Like when I post who my guests are, everyone's like, "Oh my God, Dumb and Dumber!" And then, of course, you know, Goodfellas. And it's just, you know, it's just funny because you had had such a diverse body of work. I mean, you know, you think about it. You've been in dramas. You've been in comedies. You know, and so it's 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 weird how people recognize because there's not a lot of actors who are across the board. And you know, as I said, you've gone back and forth. But it's you know, can I interview actors all the time? It's like. Another one who's across the board is like you mentioned Jack McGee. Jack was on this show. You know, Jack's played serious and Jack's played comedy. Oh, he's great. Yeah, and this this thing. Yeah. So we're running out of time, but I talked to the director about what's that movie coming out? It's called Making a Killing. And uh, of course, they, 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 they haven't even finished color, but they're thrilled. And Christopher Lloyd and Michael Jai White, and an actor who's just superb, not well known yet, Vince, uh, uh, Jude Murhead's character was Vince. And he's in his 40s, and he's. It's a very, and we have a tremendous, I mean, there's so many other casts, and it's, it's really hard to explain. It's very quirky and uh, a murder mystery, but I play the town mortician who becomes the mayor at the same time and starts his own church. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> and uh, it was based loosely on some people and added, but we have an extremely diverse cast from uh, Native Americans, the Native uh, the African-American women, African-American lead, uh, uh, senior citizens, I guess I'm starting to qualify with that, but Christopher Lloyd is just super brilliant, and it's a real, this first time director, Devin, is really, I don't know, the writers are new, they've done shorts, but 
you just get the feeling like you would uh, like a Cohen brother movie, you know what I mean, with these guys. And I think uh, it's going to be very interesting. They were talking, you know, people are interested in putting them in the Berlin Film Festival. He's trying to figure out a strategy, like you have to deal with these films that are, you know, that they have like a million or two, and it turns out looking a lot better. So I'm hoping, I'll let you know, you know, they're looking at Toronto Film Festival and also distribution internationally. So it'll be something, and I'll be on billions uh, I have a scene, and hopefully uh, they'll bring me back, maybe, God knows. But, uh, by the way, Damien Lewis is one of the best people I ever worked with. It was just me and him, and uh, one, the actor who plays his son, and uh, he was just great. He's just something. And these flawless American accents that they do. You know? I, it amazes me. It amazes me. It's like you sit there. And, and they're the most down-to-earth people. I, you know, a lot of times, they, 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 they don't walk around like kings and this and that. Right. Well, it's, guys, funny. You know? it's funny with the accents, because I tried to watch The Young Pope. I watched the first episode. I fell asleep during it. But Jude Law is doing oh, the American accent. And, uh, yeah, it's true. These guys nail it. I mean, it's crazy. So, uh, so yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm glad we got to do this. Um, you know, you Man in the High Castle, by the way. Man in the High Castle. Look at that. And, okay. It's tremendous. And, yeah, so, well, I want to thank you for coming on. And uh, it was good to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry I over-talked. No, you know, hey, anyway, that, makes, that, that, makes, that makes it easy for me. I, that's why, you know, as I say... <laughs> I just, I, I, my guests, they can do the talking because you know what? The people that listen to me, they don't want to hear me. They don't want to hear my voice. They, want, they, want, they want to hear my guests. Well, I hope they want to hear see you soon, by the way. It's, hopefully we'll I'll see you around. Up up yeah, there. yeah, no, because. Uh, I'll no, be no. around in a couple of weeks. Now, I'll let you know. Have you been, are you out auditioning? Are you booking? I mean, what's going on right now? Are you, are you, you're up in Orange County. Uh, I'm down in Orange County. Yeah, I, I would get calls for things I, uh, you know, before the holidays and. Is possible, but that I'm supposed to actually Nick Totoro and Aida Totoro. Nick is doing, you know, a lot of people are doing now these presentation pilots. I was actually on one with uh, the name Harmon and the, the comedy team. Uh, they're, they're, they're both working now. I'm sorry, I'm going up on their names, but they did this in Best Friends Forever. Okay. And, um, and Fred Savage directed it. And we did it for Dakota Films for like no money, but then they, they got picked up by NBC. We came back this like five years ago. And they did a few episodes, you know. So Nick has this thing about he's an ex-fireman, some guy, Aida, he doesn't speak to his sister. They inherit a pizza place, you know. And he wants me to be the uh, the owner of the Cigar Club. We're supposed to shoot that in about two weeks. Cool. And he wants to do a single-camera comedy. And it's very clever, very very New York-oriented, Brooklyn, and uh, and very Italian-American with that humor, but all, it's a diverse cast. Well, that's awesome, Michael man. Michael Rappaport's supposed to do it. Yeah, so that's cool. what's going on. Right. So there's things I'm looking forward. I call it Zen Beginner's Mind. It's just what you said. I'm growing into a different character, so I feel like I'm just starting all over again anyway in a lot of great ways. And that's good. So people, you got to go check out, go to IMDb, check out Mike Starr, not the musician, the actor. Okay, go to Mike Starr. Oh, God. Go, go, go look at God, all his, uh, I got to tell you something when we get off the air. I got to tell you a funny story. Uh, when, uh, when, when, when you sit there, uh, look him up and go watch his movies. So people, check him out. Follow me on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can also email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Instagram and Words with Friends, which I will play you, is coopertalk1. And my other, uh, my cookbook, stopthesalt.com. After I had my heart problem, I wrote that cookbook. Go buy it at stopthesalt.com. You can get it at Amazon. You can get it at barnesandnoble.com. But if you That's get it from Stop the Salt, I, get, I, I make more money. So people, email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Check out Mike Starr. Check out his uh, great body of work. Watch his old movies. Go back and watch them. Get yourself a little education in the film world, people, because you got 
you know, directed by Scorsese, Spike Lee, the list goes on. So people, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Life is great. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.